Welcome to the Unity Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This week we have Senior Pastor Heath Bauer bringing a message entitled Pergamum, The Need for Corporate Repentance. This comes from his sermon series, What Matters Most to God. Stick around to the end to find out how you can connect with Unity Baptist Church. like to thank the choir as they're going down. Church, isn't it a blessing to have a choir that works this hard to lift worship up with us? Yeah, thank you. Grateful to have this many worship leaders in this church. Grateful for the work that Theron, you're doing amongst them. And if I'm not mistaken, there's always room for more. I know the choir loft looks full, but friends, if you'd like to join uh, with those who are lifting up their voices in worship, please see Theron. I, I know you're thinking, well, maybe I don't really have a trained voice. Friends, Theron will get you in shape. Okay? Yeah, ask those in choir. He will, he will get you in shape. So uh, don't be afraid to join in the choir. It's a, it's a true blessing to have you here and ministering in that way to us as a body. Well, as you've seen, we're talking about the seven churches of Revelation. Those of you who have been with us for the first couple of weeks, you're quite aware of what we're doing. Those of you who have been live streaming, all you heard is... <laughs> so we apologize. Uh, for our poor live stream the last couple of weeks. What I understand is we've got that taken care of. Uh, also, uh, we're recording every message via MP3. We're going to be uploading those to the podcast as well. So even if something happens to the live stream, we have an MP3 backup, and we'll be uploading those. You can catch up on those later. In the meantime, we're talking about the seven churches, and the reason God led us to start here at the very beginning of our ministry together is because we're not here to do a ministry that glorifies me, and we're not here to do a ministry that glorifies you. We're here to, right, solely deo gloria, to the glory of God alone. And if we want to know what glorifies God, we have to see what God likes and what he dislikes. And fortunately, God has placed somewhere in the Bible where we can go, and God essentially gives out seven report cards to seven different churches detailing the things that he loves and detailing the things that he hates. And so if we're going to be a healthy church, we've got to choose to focus on the things that God loves and make sure those are in place. And we have to look at the things that God hates and make sure that we purge it from amongst us. We looked at Ephesus one week. They were a hardworking church. They were a church that dealt with false teaching. What were they lacking, though? Love. They had forgotten why we do what we do. This isn't just a religion. This is a, this is a relationship with Jesus. He is the motivation for all that we do. And then we talked about Smyrna. They were a good church. No condemnation, but they were suffering, which all saints suffer. And he taught them how to suffer well. I hope you learned uh, some of that yourself how to endure this difficult time of trial. And today we're going to look at Pergamum. So if you want to open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. Got a picture coming up on screen, perhaps, if we have our uh, PowerPoint up and running. Not sure if we have that this morning or not, but there we go. On screen here, you'll see a familiar logo. Uh, when I say the word Harvard University, the first thing that comes to your mind is probably Ivy League uh, high academic standards, probably not a place where God is glorified and trains ministers. And yet, that's exactly what it was started for. It was started by a Puritan minister named John Harvard in 1638. And its express purpose was to train up ministers. There, you'll, you'll see here, veritas, it's Latin meaning truth. Their original motto, however, was veritas 
pro Christo et ecclesia, truth for Christ and the church. In fact, if you were to go back to the 1600s at their student manual, it would say, the main end of a student's life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life, the only foundation of all solid knowledge and learning. Don't you wish Harvard still held to that ideal? In fact, if you look at the logos there, I don't just have two logos up there for no reason at all. If you look at the stone one on the left, it's an old logo, you'll see three books. The top two represent the Old and New Testaments. And those books are open, that God has something to say. If we're going to learn something in life, it must come from God. The bottom book represents all the wisdom that man has compiled over the years. And that book is turned down. That man needs to silence himself and listen to God if he's truly going to learn. However, the modern logo is on the right. What changed? Yeah, the bottom book has been flipped up. What are we saying? Man has something to say. We need to listen to man. And see, so you say, well, how does an institution started by Puritans of all people back in the 1600s to raise up ministers, how does it become the Harvard that we have today that denies God? It's that process that we call liberalism. The idea of liberalism, the idea that somebody wants to be liberated from a previous truth, in this case, the scriptures. We don't want to be limited or confined by scriptures. We want to be liberated from it and to go beyond it. Those who are conservatives, they want to conserve. They want to hold fast to the scriptures. Same thing with politics. Those who are liberals want to be liberated, freed from a particular document called the Constitution, whereas a conservative wants to hold fast to a document. Okay? This is not a political speech, by the way. Uh, and so we're looking at liberalism today because the church at Pergamum had to struggle with liberalism creeping in and the earliest foundations of it. So in chapter 2 and verse 12, we're going to see an introduction here. Jesus stands ready. Ready for what? You'll see. He begins, and to the angel of the church at Pergamum write. Now we're going to pause here. It says the angel of the church. If you were here for the first two Sundays, you understand the word angel, angelos, is just a messenger. Sometimes it refers to John the Baptist or Paul. Sometimes it refers to a, a physical angel, a spirit messenger from the Lord. But because we're talking about physical churches here, context reveals to us we're talking about the leaders, the pastor of the church at Pergamum. Now, Pergamum, you can still go there today. It's in Bergama, uh, Turkey. And if you go there, uh, you'll see that it's this gorgeous city set on a hill. And you can just see for miles and miles and miles and miles. And it was a highly trained and advanced city, very well educated. In fact, they're the ones who invented parchment, which isn't paper. It's actually highly cured animal hide that will pretty much last forever. And it's why we still have the Dead Sea Scrolls today. They were written on parchment. And so they're a highly advanced city, but Jesus is describing himself a certain way here. You're going to notice that when we talk to each of the seven churches, Jesus is going to choose to show a particular facet of himself and his, his nature and character to these churches, depending on their behavior. How is Jesus pictured with the church at Pergamum? It says, the words of him, Jesus, who has the sharp two-edged sword. Why is Jesus pictured as having a two-edged sword? Again, as we read this morning from Hebrews 4, it's referred, the word of God is this two-edged sword. And a two-edged sword in particular, it cuts both ways, right? On the, on the swing and the backswing. And we can, it does a lot of damage. A two-edged sword has only the purpose of crushing and destroying it's Jesus standing ready to judge this church at Pergamum. Why would Jesus judge 
this church at Pergamum. Well, Pergamum was a very idolater city. If you remember, uh, the, the, in the picture there, it was set on a hill. And when it was considered a high place, if you read your Old Testaments, you go through Old Testament, there's only one. Uh, if you read that, you'll notice that in the Kings and in the Chronicles, often it will talk about the king, whether he was good or bad. And he was judged by whether or not he dealt with the high places. In the high places, he was talking about temple, idolatrous temples here. Because in pagan worship, the idea was the closer I get to the heavens, the closer I get to some spirit beings or the gods. It's why the Tower of Babel, it was built up to the heavens. There was this, this innate concept in man that if I get close to the sky, I'm close to God. And so in these high places, they would build temples to these false gods. And in Pergamum itself, uh, there were a lot of them. Uh, there was a temple to Athena. There was a temple to Asclepius, not that you care about that, but you probably see his little, uh, he was the god of medicine. You'll probably still see his staff with the, the snake wrapped around it that belonged to him. There was a temple to Dionysius, also called Bacchus, the god of drunkenness. Nothing like a church building strategy by uh, surrounding people with a bunch of Jack Daniel in their hands, but that's what they did. And so it's very popular. If you want to build a church fast, appeal to their flesh. There was also a temple to Zeus, the father of the gods, and even a temple to the emperor. And friends, I could go on. This place was filled with idolatrous, non-Christian temples. But what I want you to notice is, how does Jesus feel about all these non-Christian temples? If you look at verse 13, Jesus says this, talking to Pergamum, I know where you dwell. I know where you live. Where do they live? Where Satan's throne is. How does Jesus feel about non-Christian religion and uh, other uh, ideologies? How does Jesus feel about Buddhism, Islam, uh, Hinduism, the temple worship of Zeus and Athena? How does God feel about it? He calls it the place where Satan's throne is. You see, any ideology that vaults itself against the truth that Jesus alone is God is considered a place where Satan's throne is, where he dwells, where he lives, and he controls. All roads don't lead to heaven. Everybody who dies doesn't go to a better place. And that's hard to hear, but friends, it's the truth. It's what Jesus is saying. He sees non-Christian religion or false Christian religion as something that Satan controls. And these, these folks in Pergamum are serving in this very difficult spot. But he praises them for holding fast to Jesus. He says, yet you hold fast to my name. You did not deny my faith, even the days in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who is killed among you where Satan dwells. When Jesus praises them for holding fast to his name, a person's name is their identity. If I called out somebody's name to you right now, you would immediately think of that person and qualities that describe them. So when they held fast to the name of Jesus, they didn't pervert the doctrine of Christ. They had good doctrine. They didn't just say he was a good teacher, he's a concept, he's an example, or he's just a prophet. He is Lord, he is God, he is man, he is our sacrifice. They had good doctrine. But he also praised them for not denying his faith. That's talking about the work of Christ, that this was a good and active church. They're busy doing what a church should be doing, for the most part. And he praises them for doing all this amidst tremendous persecution. It says, one of their own, Antipas, whose name means against all, uh, must have felt like that's what they were feeling like, this one lone church in the midst of all these temples. It says that he was a faithful witness and was executed for sharing the gospel. Now, can you just imagine this? It's easy for us to hear, oh, Antipas died. I don't really care. I don't know who that guy was. 
let's contextualize this just a little bit. You, you show up to church this morning and go, hey, where's Mark Maynard? Oh, didn't you hear Mark Maynard was killed by an angry mob in Central Park yesterday? They hated him for sharing his faith. He's a faithful witness known by all here. Would that affect you? This is anti, oh, by the way, he didn't die, okay? So, you know, don't be blowing up Facebook. You know, Mark Maynard, did you hear about Mark Maynard? This is their own friend. They knew him by name, Antipas. It says he was a faithful witness. He died serving the Lord. This is a difficult place. It's sort of like the old mighty men of, of uh, David, a fellow named Benaiah, who's described as a man who killed a lion in a pit on a day when snow had fallen. He did a tough job in a tough place at a tough time. That is the, that is the church of Pergamum. However, God has a problem with them. He gives them a rebuke he, because of their compromising theology. He says this, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who are holding the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some holding the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So to understand what's happening here, we have to have a bit of an Old Testament history lesson. Who is Balaam? Balaam was essentially a witch doctor. Now, he called himself a prophet, but he was a false prophet. He dealt in witchcraft and sorcery, and he would curse people for the right price. He was, he was a sorcerer for hire. Well, you have this fellow Balak, okay? And Balak was, <clears throat> excuse me, was a king of Moab, and he's frightened because Israel, this is during a time when Israel was led out of Egypt through many mighty works that God did, okay? And that news spreads fast. And everywhere they go through the desert, as they're moving toward the promised land, God is giving them victory after victory after victory, this tiny nation. Why? Because the battle belongs to the Lord. And they're getting closer. They've just defeated Sihon and Og, and now they're at his doorstep. It's sort of like if we had uh, this, this mighty force coming for us, and we hear news stories that they're in Barbersville, and they're coming up through Huntington. They're at Catlisburg, and they're, they're right on our doorstep, and we're starting to feel it, and we're getting panicky. And so he goes out, and he gets this, this witch doctor for hire, Balaam, and says, hey, if I give you a lot of money, will you curse these people? He says, you better believe I will. So he comes up there, and he tries to curse them, and those of you who know the story, what happened? He tries to speak a word of cursing, but what comes out? Blessing. That had to feel weird. <laughs> He's trying to say one thing, something else comes out. Oh, let me just give that another try. <clears throat> me, 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 me. Okay, uh, curse, no, blessing comes out again and again. Four times he tries to bless or tries to curse Israel and ends up blessing them. And by this time, uh, Balak, the king, is just jumping up and down in fury. Why do you keep blessing these people? I paid you to curse them. And he says, I can't help it. Basically, God won't let me curse them. Now, there's an interesting lesson to be learned here, friends. Uh, today is Halloween, for better or for worse. Uh, it is, uh, you know, we, we all know what it means to most of us, which is just a bunch of candy and kids dressing up and having fun knocking on doors. Uh, we also understand that its origin is evil. Its origin is pagan. Its origin, it's still the highest occult holiday of the year. This is basically a witch's Christmas. Uh, there's still animal and human sacrifice being done on this day in honor of this holiday. It's, 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 it's a dark thing, and what I've noticed is sometimes Christians, we get scared of that. We get scared of the presence of evil around us. I've even known people who are like, I don't even want to go out on Halloween. I'm just, I'm just frightened of all this stuff, and I don't know what Satan's going to do. And, and they get all worried. Friends, can I just tell you this? Don't be afraid of Halloween. As a Christian, 
Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. John 1 talks about how Jesus as light came into the world, but the darkness did not overcome it. Even evil is limited by the power of God. Look at the book of Job when you read it. Satan himself, the prince of all evil, has to ask permission of Jesus to cause trouble for Job. God is in control. He even limits the spread and the activity of evil. And so friends, we don't want to curse Satan, but we don't want to be afraid of him either. We just keep our eyes focused on Jesus and our perspective will be clear. So here we have Balaam. He's pretty upset because he's a witch doctor for hire and he's not gonna get paid because he couldn't curse them well. So he devised a plan. Well, I'm going to help this guy find a way for Israel to be weakened. I'm going to help tempt them into sinning against God and getting into idolatry. And so he counseled with him. In Numbers 22, 36, talks about how he, uh, he counseled all the neighbors of Israel, the Moabites and the Midianites, and to tempt them into their own pagan idolatry. See, a lot of them were out worshiping false gods like Baal. And Baal worship is pretty appealing to a bunch of Jews going through the desert who have been eating manna the whole time. It's like, it's like Thanksgiving turkey a week and a half later. Is this stuff still good anymore? I don't know. I'm tired of eating turkey sandwiches and turkey this and you know, turkey that and just you, know, you mix it up with other things and you make a turkey salad and you're, you're kind of done with it. This is their, them with manna but on steroids. I mean it's just manna this, manna that, manna casserole, grilled manna, manna sandwiches. And it's just, and they're, they're tired of it. In fact, if you remember, that's one of the things they griped about in the desert. Oh, that I was back in Egypt as a slave. We had leeks and onions and we could have some meat. What do you think these Baal worshipers are going to offer Israel during this time? Meat. So while Israel's, you know, munching on the manna, they see their buddies over here worshiping Baal at the Out Baal Steakhouse. Don't laugh, it's not that good a joke. They see all this meat being eaten by these Baal worshipers, and they're thinking, wow, that sure looks good. But the problem was, is this Baal was offered to an idol, and to, and to consume that meat meant that you were entering into fellowship with Baal. And furthermore, when you were done with that, you would enter into a temple maiden, okay, and you would, you would commit immorality, which brought you into intimacy with Baal. And Israel fell right into this trap. And just as Balaam hoped, Israel committed idolatry. They were immoral. They ate the meat offered to the idols, entered into this idol worship. And so, and God did judge them. So the sin of Baal, Balaam rather, is defined in 2 Peter 2.15. He says, it's this, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, son of Beor, who loved gain, from wrongdoing, and he was rebuked for his own transgression. I'll say he was, God killed him. Okay, Balaam, his, his story didn't end well. The sin of Balaam is when a religious leader sacrifices truth for earthly gain. Can that ever happen? Where churches realize it's a lot easier to build a church on error than truth? If you just tell people what they wanna hear, you just make them feel good, you tell them that how they're living is currently okay already and all they have to do is give a little money and God will bless them and give them tons of money. Friend, you can turn on TBN and see a, a whole banquet of charlatans there who are driving Maseratis home and laughing all the way because they have fleeced the flock of God. So we need to beware, friends, of the kind of things that we're taking in. 
In addition, he says, some were practicing the ways of the Nicolaitans, which we've already described. It's an outgrowth of the first Christian cult, Gnosticism, this gnosis, this special knowledge that these people had. And basically, it led to this idea that you know, flesh is evil and spirit is good. And since flesh is evil, God doesn't care what you do with your flesh. So do it with your bodies, whatever you want. And there were some, it says, in this church that practiced that. Pergamum was allowing this liberalism within their church. Notice it said some, not all. It was just some. But they tolerated it within their church. They tolerated this liberal creep within the church. And friends, that, by the way, churches are always either struggling with or against liberalism. With, if you tolerate it, or against it, you refuse to allow it any foothold in your church. But you're either struggling against it or you're flowing downstream with it. If you've ever been in a river, uh, I remember the first time I went from a creek to a river. I used to creek walk and play as a kid, and that was a lot of fun, walking in the creeks. But then I met my first river. Uh, I was in high school. We were doing a tubing trip down the Des Moines River, and I remember the first time, and it, the water was pretty high. And I got in maybe about knee-deep or so, and all of a sudden I felt the current. And friends, if you don't intentionally stand against the flow of the current, what's going to happen to you? It's going to take out your feet from under you, and you're going to drift downstream. The same thing happens in a church or in a believer's life. Either we are standing against the flow of liberalism in our hearts, a, a, a movement away from, to be liberated from God's word, or slowly but surely our feet are taken out from under us, and we are carried downstream with the way of the world. Churches and people are at a crossroads. They are constantly being bombarded. Remember, we're in Satan's territory right now. God is in control, but he has allowed Satan uh, a certain measure of, of, of strength and power and freedom to do what he does. That's why he's called the prince of the power of the air. We're, in, we're, we're, we're not home. We're, on, we're in a cursed earth. We're in Satan's territory here, and there is constant movement away from God. Whether you turn on the TV, you're reading Facebook, you watch the news, there is a constant movement to go away from the Bible, to be freed and liberated from the Bible. Are we free from that? Does liberalism ever try to get into this church? All the time. Does liberalism, are, is, are Southern Baptists safe from liberalism? Liberalism, whew, we don't have to worry about that. We're Southern Baptists. We struggle against it. Any of you guys around during the 70s and 80s, you remember the conservative resurgence. Why did we have that? Where we, we as an as a organization said, we are not going to go any further, and we're going to purge this evil from amongst us. I say evil because anything that denies the authority of the Scriptures is an evil presence in our life. And it has to be fought. And during that time, we had, we had professors at the seminary level. Midwestern had a professor who was teaching that most of Genesis is mythological literature. Are you okay with that? I hope you're not. Well, the Southern Baptist Convention wasn't comfortable with that either. And I could give you a hundred different examples of what was going on there. In fact, of those who graduated Southern Baptist seminaries at that time, only 63% said that they believed this with confidence, this, this phrase, Jesus is the divine son of God and I have no doubts. Seminary grads. And so it was time for a resurgence of conservatism, conserving the word of God. It was a necessary and painful experience that Southern Baptists had to go through. One that our own Al Mohler there at Southern said it was a reformation at a very high price. But friends, we have to be willing to pay the price or else we drift downstream theologically. 
We're still fighting it today, aren't we? It wasn't like, whew, we fought that battle in the 70s and 80s. I'm glad we're done with that. We're still fighting it. Currently, one of the things we're fighting is a 1930s Marxist ideology out of Germany called CRT. I don't need to go into detail. You've heard a lot about that already. This idea that everybody's either oppressor or oppressed, trying to get everybody to fight each other and hate each other. And there's a number of Southern Baptists who say, oh, the world likes that. Hey, we, we're, we'll join you on that one. If you'll come to our church, will you come to our church? We'll join you. We like that idea. And we start baptizing secular, godless theology and ideology, and we bring it into the church. And thank God, as a convention, we have our major seminaries, all six of our major seminaries, Southern, Southwestern, Southeastern, Midwestern, and so on. The president signed a joint document saying, we will not follow this, that the CRT is antithetical to the gospel. And we will not go further. We will not cooperate with the world to fill our pews. We're always fighting liberalism, and we're either joining it or we're purging it. And it's difficult. It's not fun. The sin of Balaam is in, the, in the Nicolaitans is directed only at some in the church. It's not like the entire church was destroyed by this. And yet, the rebuke is for the entire church. Does that sound fair? Friends, when it is within our power to restrain evil, and we do not, that is an evil of itself. And God holds us accountable. I don't care if that's a church or if that's your home. You got kids at your home, and a lot of times parents just throw up their hands and say, well, I don't know what to do. That kid just, you know, he's just doing his thing, and I don't know. Parents, you have the power to restrain evil within your home. I'm not talking about kids who have, are adults and left the home. I'm talking about kids within your home. Oh, my kid just doesn't like going to church, so I just let him stay at home. Friends, not going to church and not prioritizing God is an evil in and of itself, and we have the ability to say, no, while you're at my house, you're going to prioritize getting to know God, and you're going to come with me. We have the power to do that as parents. We make sure that they eat good food and not just candy bars all the time. We make sure that they study hard for school. We've communicated those things are important. Eat healthy and study well. But when we don't make them learn about God, we've basically communicated, eh, it's not that important. Take it or leave it. It's your choice. And we have a responsibility to restrain evil. In fact, God, in the, in the Old Testament, in 1 Samuel 3, God judged Eli for not restraining the evil of his sons. If you remember, he had a couple of worthless sons, Hophni and Phinehas. They're eating the good meat that they were supposed to give to the Lord, and they kept it for themselves. Furthermore, they're sleeping with uh, some of the women who came to the temple. They were, they were horrible individuals, and God took Eli's life. God said, I would judge his family forever because of the sin he knew about. His sons blasphemed God, and he failed to restrain them. That happens in homes, friends. It also happens in churches. When we have the ability to restrain evil, we have the ability to restrain false teaching within the church, and we do not, God holds the entire church accountable. So what would God have us do? The solution is, number four, to repent. To repent. God calls us corporately as a church to repent of any evil that's found within the church to purge it out from amongst us. That word repent, if you've been here very long, you understand that repentance is that Greek word metanoia. Meta meaning to change, to metamorphose. Noia, talking about the one's noetic capabilities, their mind. So it's a changing of the mind. It's not simply turning from sins to Christ, which is usually how we learn the definition. That's the application of repentance. That's the evidence of repentance. Repentance itself is when we come face to face with the truth of God, and it so radically affects our life that we believe it to the point that it causes that change. 
sort of like my dad. I used to go working with him on job sites, and he always hated the skill saws and like the, the circular saws that had the, the guards on them. <laughs> and he'd rip them off. <clears throat> so it'd be like someone who took the blade, the, the guard off a skill saw, and cut off his finger. He used to believe that this, this guard was just a hindrance and annoyance. Now he knows that it was a great idea, maybe. And, and from now on, I'm going to forever keep that guard on my, on my saw. It's, it's a change of belief such that it changes how you live from now and forever. And he's, causing, he's telling this church, you need to change your belief about this. Tolerating false teaching within your church is not tolerable at any level. And you've got to repent. You've got to change your mind about this and purge this evil from among you. What are some ways that we can evidence that repentance? Friends, one, be aware of what your church is teaching. Proverbs 27, 23 says, know well the condition of your flock. Friends, for us, that means systems of accountability. Now, for me, there's lots of accountability. Uh, you can watch the live stream. You can watch a podcast. You, I give you scripture, and I try to give you the references most every time because I want you to fact check me. Do you know that's one thing you're supposed to do? You're supposed to. You're supposed to hold every teacher accountable to the word of God. Furthermore, friends, uh, when you visit a Sunday school or a small group or a D group, I want you to have confidence that these teachers have been thoroughly vetted, that they're well-trained, and that the content they're giving you is thoroughly biblical. But often, that's where we drop the ball. So friends, if you're teaching some Lifeway resource or whatever, we got an idea of where you're going, it's healthy theology, no problem. You want to do something else? No problem. But you're going to have to submit what you teach to Brad. Why? Because cults are created when there's a lack of theological accountability in the small groups. You say, well, that sounds a little strong. Can I just share a couple things with you? Some of our major cults, do you know where they came from? Jehovah's Witnesses, do you know where they started? It wasn't just a dude on a street corner who had a vision and said, hey, I think I'm going to create a cult today. There's, there's good pay. It's good retirement. A lot of respect there. Jehovah's Witnesses started out as a Bible study with Charles Taz Russell, the Millennial Dawn Bible Study. Guess where? Presbyterian Church. Mormonism. Where do you think that started? Joseph Smith and Moroni and all this angel stuff and tablets. Started out as a Bible study in a Methodist church. Christian science, which is odd because it's neither Christian nor science, uh, started by a lady named Mary Baker Glover Patterson Eddy. Now, that's a mouthful. That's a bad-luck woman right there. She had more husbands than the woman at the well. She created this religion, which, by the way, there's no teachers, there's no preachers, there's no instruction. It's just basically a heretic library, and you go and you study on how to heal your body. Where do you think that started? Just, she just had an idea? It started in a Congregationalist Puritan church. New Apostolic Reformation. Some of you may not even know what that term means. Uh, basically the idea that we have apostles today. We don't, by the way. Uh, and we get new revelations from God, new prophecies, which we don't, by the way. The Bible is complete and sufficient by itself. They'll tell you things like the glory of God falls from heaven, and they literally sprinkle gold dust on the congregation. That's something we, we might think about in our worship there, Theron. We're not. Uh, and they'll do crazy things. You know, you'll have uh, honey pots and fire tunnels, and don't worry about all this stuff. Don't Google it either. It's, it's scary stuff. They'll lay on the graves of people to suck up their souls and their power into their body. Now, if this sounds like witchcraft and voodoo, it is, but this is the New Apostolic Reformation, and it may shock you to know that some of the most famous churches within this organization are Bethel and Hillsong. 
And that, where, where do we get these crazy ideas? Did it just start? No. The New, Reformation, New Apostolic Reformation and uh, things like Jesus culture, it started in the Assemblies of God Church, which itself started in the Methodist Holiness Movement. And so what I'm saying is, friends, cults arise when there's little theological accountability in a church. And so we're going to, we're going to ramp up our protection of you as a flock within what is being taught in these small groups. Say, we've never done that before. Friends, we didn't have Novocaine before either, but I think you're probably glad that when the dentist reaches for a tool to drill in your tooth that we have it. It's what's healthy. Other thing we can do is teach our people to be discerning individually. Friends, I'm always gonna tell you this, don't just take my word for it. Any preacher of the word is gonna say, I'm not your spiritual authority. Don't, don't be lazy in your theology and say, well, whatever Brother Heath teaches, I, I agree with that. Do your homework. I'm not your authority, and let me say this too, as gently as I can, no other previous pastor is your authority either. Only the word of God is our authority in discerning what the will of the head is. And so we gotta make sure that we're focused, biblically based in what we teach. Number three, I think we can mark those that cause division. Now that's a difficult one. Romans 16, 17 says, I appeal to you brothers to watch out for, some translations say mark, which is it? It's both. Mark those who cause division and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine you have been taught and avoid them. Now that word mark or watch out, it's the Greek word skopeo. What does that sound like to you? Scope. You hunters who scope out deer, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, or what I want to think though is with this scope, think of a, a large mer merchant vessel. You got a guy on the top here and he's looking for problems. He's up in the crow's nest. He's actively alert. This is how the church is to be, actively alert and looking for false teaching. But not with the intention of just identifying it. You know, imagine the guy in the crow's nest. Hey, there's a pirate. I guess I'll have a ham sandwich now and he'll sit down and he's, he's, he's looking with the intention of warning you guys. Hey, we got like Blackbeard the pirate. He's coming in the... Queen Anne's Revenge, or whatever his, I forget the name of his ship, but he's coming, and so he's warning people. That's the idea here when it says mark those that cause division. The church should be constantly looking out and looking around for false teacher with the intention of marking it, calling it out. Why? Because there's a whole group of people who are dependent upon that protection. We need one another to protect ourselves against false teaching. And then the command in Romans 16, 17 is to avoid them. Be careful what you listen to. Not every book that you buy from the Shield of Faith uptown is gonna be healthy. They, they reach out to a lot of different theological beliefs and traditions. Not every preacher you listen to on the radio is worth listening to. Do your homework. Find out, is this author, is this preacher any good? Friends, you put me through the mill to get here. <laughs> Those of you on the search committee, you know that's true. I had, what was it, eight, 10 hours just of Skype calls? You ask me every question in the book. I mean, the hard stuff, not just like, tell me about your call to ministry. Why'd you do that? Because you want to make sure you're not getting a heretic up here, and I applaud that. But, that, but apply that same thing to any preacher that you listen to. You'll put me through the mill, but some other guy, you'll, you'll just turn on the radio and go, I like the way he sounds. We've got to be a discerning people. And not just listen to the people that make us laugh. Not just listen to the people that, we, that entertain us. We listen to those of sound doctrine. And the last thing, I'm not going to park here for too long. A church is commanded to practice church discipline. And this is a tough one. Matthew 18 talks about church discipline. And how, in Galatians 1 even says, Brethren, if you see someone overtaken a trespass, 
right? We restore them in a spirit of meekness and fear. We're, we're called to do this. Even the passage that says, judge not, what does it actually say? Judge not lest you be judged, because it's going to be judged back to you. First, remove the plank from your own eye, then you'll be able to remove the plank from your brother's eye. Oh, we forget that part. That at some point in time, we are supposed to help our brother with his speck, but with a spirit of meekness and love and kindness and fear. Most of us, we don't like the idea of church discipline because we've seen it done poorly. We've seen just an angry mob of people that are basically carrying pitchforks and torches. Oh, this guy is horrible. We hate him. We hate him, and God hates him. We hope you hate him, too. That's not church discipline. Church discipline is a loving, restorative thing like a parent might do for a wayward child. Okay? The... the, the Church discipline is the immune system of the body of Christ. It's done, but it's done lovingly, it's done kindly, it's done with humility, and its goal is not punitive, it's restorative. And when it's not done, churches get overcome by liberalism. When it is done, false teaching is removed from the church and the people are protected. What if we don't do this? Say, I don't like any of this. I'm just going to pass. Jesus says, if you don't do this, if not... I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. What does that mean? I don't think I want to find out. Sort of like my wife when she was growing up, if she back-talked her, her mom, she would say, do you want to go around? My wife had no idea what that meant, but she did not want to find out. Okay, when Jesus says, I will war against you, he's going to oppose your church with the sword of his mouth, again, uh, from his mouth, it's the spoken word, it's the intention, it is the, uh, the will of God, and the sword of his mouth indicating judgment, that God will remove our lampstand, a picture of the church, he will wipe out our church. Can God remove a church from this earth if they do not hold to true teaching? He does it all the time. And so as a church, friends, we've got to be pure in doctrine. We don't want to invite Jesus to war against us. And then he says, he who has, a hear, has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It's just simply that some of you guys here are concerned about this. There's going to be some here that just don't much care. That's right. We're talking to those who do care. To the one who conquers, I will give him the hidden manna, a white stone, and a new name written on that stone that no one knows except that person, the one who receives it. What does that mean? The one who conquers, we're just talking about someone who has finished a battle. It's somebody who's been faithful all the way to the very end. That is an evidence of our belief. We don't remain faithful to the end to keep our salvation, to stay saved, to earn our salvation, but it's an evidence that you've truly been converted. Just like a butterfly can't go back to being a caterpillar. Hard as he might want to try, get back in that chrysalis, he can't. A, a true believer can't go back to not believing in God, can't go back to not trusting in Christ no matter how hard he tries. Well, I know somebody who did. You might have known somebody who went to church and walked away, but the Bible acknowledges not everybody that goes to church is a believer. That's why the Bible says, make sure you're, you make, or Peter says, 2 Peter 1, make your calling and election sure. These are terms for salvation. Make sure you're actually a believer. You're not just churched. Those who endure to the end, he promises three things. First one is hidden manna. This is just a reference to Jesus Christ. John 6, 51, Jesus says, I'm the living bread. Then he promises a white stone. That's odd. It's probably a reference to a Roman custom that when you did a, an athletic event of some kind, you competed according to the rules, and you finished well, they gave you a white stone with your name engraved on it. And what that did is that ensured you a place in the award ceremony and banquet in your honor later. It was an entry ticket. 
God is saying that to those who, are, who endure to the end, you're a true believer, that your name is engraved in stone. Your, your eternal security is solid with me, and you will be invited into an eternal banquet in your honor because you finished well and you competed according to the rules. A new name, a name again indicates identity. When God changes your name, it means God is changing his stance towards you. Okay, uh, Abram, high father, that's what it means, was changed to Abraham, you're a father of many nations. Sarai, princess, became the mother of nations. Jacob, supplanter, trickster. God changed his name to Israel, meaning having power with God. That God, when he saves you, doesn't just forgive you and leave you the same way, he converts your heart. And he gives you a new identity before, you, before him, and no matter what you've done in the past, Jesus can forgive it. Aren't you glad that no matter what kind of sins you brought with you, no matter what kind of problems or struggles that you had, Jesus has the power to give you a new name, a fresh start. Well, we began this sermon talking about Harvard's descent into liberalism. Did you know where that descent began? It began in the church. Universalism, this idea that everybody goes to heaven no matter what. Unitarianism, this idea that God isn't one or three, but rather just one, uh, crept into the Puritan church. And then the Puritan church, seeing that they're having a hard time keeping people in the pews, decided to change their stance on membership and said, well, you don't actually have to prove your conversion. You just go ahead and be a member anyway, because we need to fill this church. And as a result, liberalism crept into the church. And because it crept into the church, it crept in through the church into their institutions that they controlled and Harvard became liberal because the churches around it became liberal. Friends, how do we stop the flow of this nation away from God and back toward the word and toward Jesus? It begins with every individual saying, you know what, doctrine matters. And I'm going to guard that doctrine within my church. It begins with this church right here saying, you know what, here is what the word of God says and we will not move to the left nor to the right. We're going to follow what the Word of God says no matter what the society does. As goes the church, so goes the institution. And so the, the journey of, of helping this nation revive itself and turn back to God is going to begin with individual hearts right here. It's going to begin with this church and many like us saying, we're going to conserve the truth of God, not seek to be liberated or freed from it simply because society deems it necessary, or because we want to fill our church with people. True success in a church isn't a full house. It's a house of people who worship God. It's a house of people who are truly and genuinely converted and want to be used of him. And friend, I pray that that is the reason you're here this morning as well. As we close today, would you just go ahead and join me in prayer? Friends, I'd like us just to stop and think for just a little bit and just have a time of quiet reflection. You can stay seated at this time. I just want you to, every time the word of God is taught, myself included, we need to take a moment out and just stop and think, God, what do you want me to do as a result of this message? It might be something like, you know what, I've been pretty lax in what I read. I've been pretty lax into the preachers I listen to. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to hold fast to the word. I'm going to, I'm going to be discerning. It might be something like, uh, I need to... I, I myself need to be more involved in the church. I need to be teaching. I need to be active. I need to be involved. I need to be a part of what God is doing to help conserve that truth. It might be something like, I need a new name. 
that I'm living like the world. I am, I'm, 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 maybe I've come to church all my life, but I'm, I'm still an unbeliever that God is convicting my heart. I need to know Jesus. I need to be truly converted and not just churched. Whatever your need is, I pray that you would just lift that up to him in prayer this morning. Father, we, we just give thanks today. Pray that you would quiet our hearts before you. Let us meditate on these things for just a few moments. Not be thinking about where we're going, Father, but to fully just devote our thoughts and our energies towards you and what changes you may have and desire for our life. God, work through your people this morning as we pray. And if there's any here, Lord, who do not know you, God, I pray that you would convict their heart to the place where they'll come to know you. We ask this in Christ's name. Thanks for joining us today. It is our prayer that this has been an encouragement to you. If you're interested in our gathering times or just want more information about Unity, you can connect with us at unitybaptistashland.com or on Facebook at UBC Ashland. Join us next week as we open God's Word together.